evidence and answers. The Exodus is one of the most important events in biblical history. However, most archaeologists and Old Testament scholars believe the Exodus is folklore. One of the most prominent Old Testament archaeologists, Israel Finkelstein, states, combination of archaeological and historical research demonstrates that the biblical account of the conquest and occupation of Canaan by the Israelites is entirely divorced from historical reality. Is there evidence of the Exodus and Joshua's conquest of Canaan? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. At a recent conference hosted by the Wailai Baptist Church in Hawaii, Pat spoke on archaeology in the Old Testament, now with part one of his second session entitled Examining the Exodus. Here's Pat. Well, we're examining the Exodus now, perhaps next to the resurrection. This might be the most important event in the Bible. It's been celebrated for over 3,000 years by the people of Israel. It's a time, one of the greatest period that we've seen of God's miracles in history. This is the time when really the nation of Israel came to be and it, it was a time of the giving of the law of God, the law of God that would influence nations all over the world for the next several centuries. Several Jewish festivals are connected with the Exodus, the Passover, the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Tabernacles. And this is also a significant event for Christians as well, not just for Jews. Jesus quotes the Pentateuch numerous times, calling it the law of Moses. So he affirms Mosaic authorship and the events of the Exodus. Jesus celebrated the Passover, one of the Exodus events. So the importance of the Exodus to Judaism and Christianity cannot be underestimated here. Now if the Exodus did not occur, this would be a major blow to the historical integrity of the Bible and to the deity of Christ. Because if this didn't happen, and Jesus was teaching that it did, either Jesus is deceiving us, or he really didn't know that it was false. And therefore, you could question, was this guy really God incarnate, God the Son? Okay, so it's for these reasons we need to examine the evidence for the Exodus and see if there's a case for the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan. Now, did this event actually happen? Most in the archaeological field and even in Old Testament studies don't believe this was an actual historical event. The minimalists, remember them? And here's some of the critics' arguments against the Exodus. Now, most Near Eastern archaeologists believe the Exodus account is a legend invented by the priests of Israel in about the 7th or 8th century BC during the reign of King Josiah. Under King Josiah, he brought religious revival to the land. And that's when the priest said, hey, you know what? We need a history to unite all these loose confederate of tribes together. Okay? And so many believe that's when the Pentateuch was written, or the Hexateuch, 
okay, from Genesis to Joshua, and Je that was written to give this nation some kind of history. Most minimalists believe that the Israelites are actually a powerful Canaanite tribe that arose to prominence in 1000 BC, and when they established that small little empire there in Canaan, they created this whole myth of the exodus to bring national pride, bring identity and history to their people, and build the case that Jerusalem is our historical capital under a guy named David and Solomon, and that this is the center of our worship. Here's what some of the top Near Eastern archaeologists have to say. Thomas L. Thompson. He says, salvation history is not a historical account of saving events open to the study of the historian. Salvation history did not happen. It is a literary form which has its own historical context. In fact, we can say that the faith of Israel is not a historical faith in the sense of a faith based on historical events. It is rather a faith within history. Dorothy Irvin, she writes, on Israelite history, of these narratives, Davidic lore, as well as all the narratives of the Pentateuch, the historical problem is not so much that they are historically unverifiable, and especially not that they are untrue historically, but that they are radically irrelevant as sources of Israel's history. Israel Finkelstein, once again, perhaps the most prolific writer and Near Eastern archaeologist, he writes this, on the conquest. The combination of archaeological and historical research demonstrates that the biblical account of the conquest and occupation of Canaan by the Israelites is entirely divorced from historical reality. So this is what the majority of Old Testament scholars and archaeologists hold to. Right? So if you go to a regular university or even a Christian university, these are the guys that our students are reading. Now, the critics' case against the Exodus is this. Number one, there's no extra-biblical records for the Exodus in Egypt or the Near East. No Canaanite records about some great Exodus, plagues, crossing of the Red Sea. No Egyptian records of it either. Don't you think the Egyptians would write about it? You know, they lost their entire slave force. They lost their army. They lost their pharaoh. How come it's not in any Egyptian records? Or it would have completely decimated the nation of Egypt. Something like that would have decimated Egypt. We don't see that in Egyptian records. Not around the dates of the supposed biblical dates of the Exodus. The date of the Exodus does not match up with the data. Okay? Conservative Bible scholars believe that the Exodus occurred around 1446 BC. This is based on the passage in 1 Kings 6.1. So the conquest then would have occurred in about 1406 BC. Most biblical scholars, based on Exodus 1.1, says the Israelites built the cities of Python and Ramses. They date the Exodus about 1260 BC, and the conquest would be 40 years later, 1220 BC. They say the Ramses in Exodus 1 verse 11 is Ramses II, or Ramses the Great, one of the greatest pharaohs of Egypt who ruled from 1290 to 1230 BC. That's a very long rule. Now, both of these dates are problematic because it doesn't seem to match up with the data, the archaeological data. One of the keys is the city of Jericho as studied 
Most archaeologists believe Jericho was an abandoned city from 1550 to 1200 BC. So about 300 years it was abandoned. So the exodus happened there, you know, during that time, um, they came to an abandoned city. Right? So the stories of Joshua would then be folklore as well. So if the exodus occurred in 1446 or 1260, you know, Joshua would be coming to an abandoned city there at Jericho and Ai as well. So if the conquest stories are legends, then the exodus would be as well. Now, here are some reasons that evangelicals have given for the lack of archaeology regarding the exodus. Okay? And many of these are valid. First, while wandering through the desert for 40 years, Israel remained mobile. And so they wouldn't be putting up any kind of permanent monument or settlement. So we shouldn't expect to find any archaeological discoveries of Israel and their wanderings through the desert. Second, Egypt, as is the case with Middle Eastern kings there, they would not record the records of such a defeat upon their nation. Especially the mighty nation of Egypt losing to a bunch of slaves. Okay, they wouldn't record anything like that. A story like that would be a blow to the king's pride. And remember, ancient Near Eastern history, see, biblical history is very unique, all right? Ancient biblical history is mostly political propaganda, okay? Talk about fake news. Even when these kings lose a war, they write like, like it was a massive victory in their favor. But it's a political propaganda to exalt their kings and their empire as mighty, unshakable, unbeatable. That's what you want to portray to the other nations around you, right? You don't want them attacking you. That's why you don't record any defeats. If you've been defeated and your empire's in a vulnerable state, you don't want the other nations around to know about it, all right? Because a lot of times they're going to be looking to take your territories or come and invade you. So you wouldn't write about something like that. And these Egyptian kings, too much pride, they wouldn't record anything about their defeats, only their victories. We have any St. Louis high school grads here? Oh, hey, St. Louis, okay. I like picking on St. Louis. Uh, you ever talk to St. Louis grads, Kyle over here? They only talk about what? St. Louis football, yeah. Why? Huh? Because they always win, right? So whenever you talk about St. Louis people, I'm talking about football, St. Louis football, because they always win. How many championships they won? 30? 40? Man, they won like 12 in a row or something, right? So I'm talking about football, right? Because they always win in football. But they don't talk about the other sports. Why? Because in the other sports, St. Louis loses. They lose. So the sports we really care about, golf, tennis, judo, the sports we really care about, St. Louis loses. They lose. But when you talk to St. Louis people, all they talk about is football. Because they just win. They just dominate in football. That's a, so that's like the Egyptian kings. Okay? They only talk about their victories. And even when they lose, it sounds like they've won in battle. But that's the whole point. You want to build up your king and your nation so that no one else will want to come and mess with you. All right? And finally, according to many archaeologists, we've yet to excavate the mass majority of sites, so discoveries have yet to be made. Now, these are good explanations, but not completely satisfactory, right? 
And with new discoveries, we have made some exciting discoveries of the Exodus. Now, we need the right approach, okay? You don't want the extreme approach of the minimalist here. They base their conclusions solely on the archaeological data and say the Bible has no historical value whatsoever and completely ignore the Bible. Okay, minimalists do this because they say, if you look at archaeology through the lens of the Bible, you've got your bias there, and you're going to make the mistake that biblical archaeologists of the past have made so eager to prove their point, they can't come in objectively looking at the archaeological data. Right? But you don't want extreme maximalists either. They draw their conclusions from their biblical interpretation right, and say, we're only going to look at the archaeology that matches my interpretation. And whatever doesn't, we're just throwing it out. We're just going to ignore it completely. Okay? Those are the two extreme approaches. We want to use the approach from my professor here, Dr. Stephen Collins, the dialogical approach. Okay? This is the best approach, and I believe the most balanced, where we look at both the Bible and the archaeology. Both events occur in the land of the Bible. They occur in the same soil and the same reality. So the texts can illuminate the archaeology, and the archaeology can illuminate the Bible. The two need to be talking to one another here. That's why we call it the correspondence or the dialogical approach. Now, when there appears to be conflict here, what do we do? We don't dismiss either sources too quickly. We need to examine the biblical text and say, did we interpret it properly? Do we understand the text properly here? Okay? Do we have a good manuscript? Has it been transmitted to us accurately? Is the translation accurate? And then we need to look at the archaeological data and say, how good is it? Do we need to wait for more data to arise? How solid is this archaeological data there? And we need to look at both. Because there have been times archaeology has corrected our faulty interpretation of the Bible. Usher's calendar is a good example of that. And there have been times when the biblical text helps us understand the archaeological data there and reinterpret our conclusions. So this is the best approach where the two are interacting with one another. Just like when you come to the field of science, the Bible and science, the two should be interacting with each other. You, wanna, you don't want to throw out one or the other too quickly. Also, we should be looking at what we call historical synchronisms. Historical synchronisms. It means this, because the Egyptians would not write about a defeat to a nation of slaves like this, and they don't want their enemies to know, they just lost their entire army and their pharaoh. I mean, they don't want nations to know that. They won't write about something like that. But do we have clues from the nations around the Mediterranean? What about the Hittites? who traded regularly with the Egyptians? What about Mitanni, who had a treaty and alliance with Egypt? What about Canaan? The Egyptians own Canaan. They own it. That's Egyptian territory. Do we have hints from Canaan as to what's going on in Egypt as well? So we look 
at the data and we look for historical synchronisms. We look at the data from these surrounding nations. If a catastrophe like the plagues of Egypt happened in, you know, happened in Egypt, you would expect that that nation would have collapsed, okay? And the other nations knowing about it would have taken advantage of it. So those are the kind of things we need to look at. We need to look at the complete picture and it comes together like a jigsaw puzzle. All right, now the first thing we're gonna look at and the critics attack is this. Is a mass migration of Asiatics coming from Canaan and coming into Egypt and someone like Joseph, a foreigner, rising to the second highest office, is that possible? Is that realistic? <laughs> Could that have happened in Egypt? Now, the critics argue that that would have never happened in Egypt. They say this would never happen. Egypt would never allow thousands of migrants coming in from Canaan because the threat, right, that they would take over Egypt. And they would, Egyptian despise Canaanites. They would never allow a foreigner like Joseph to rise to second in command, right? So let's see if a migration like this would be possible. Well, according to the Bible, the Exodus begins in the book of Genesis. Joseph is sold into Egyptian slavery by his brothers. Remember, Joseph was the favorite son, and so his daddy gave him what? A coat of many colors. Remember that. A coat of many colors. And his brothers get jealous, you know, and contrive this thing that he was killed by a wild animal, but they throw him in a pit and they sell him into slavery, and he goes there into Egypt. And through the providence of God, he rises from slave to become the second most powerful man in Egypt behind the Pharaoh. And eventually, Joseph is reunited with his family, and Jacob and his whole family migrate there to Egypt. And through the blessing of God, they become a great nation in Egypt. To the point where Exodus 1.8 says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And this king viewed foreigners, like the Hebrews, as a threat. And he, to control them and their population, he forced them into slavery for several centuries. And in fact, wanted to control the population by throwing the boys, uh, young baby boys, into the Nile. Now, critics argue that this could not have happened for such a large migration and for Joseph to arise to power. Well, let's take a look at this. Now, one of the repeating themes you see in the story of the patriarchs is that there was a drought in the land of Canaan, and so Abraham went to Egypt for a while. Isaac went to Egypt for a while. Jacob eventually ends up in Egypt. You see that theme throughout the Old Testament. Now, if Usher's calendar is correct, then everything would be thrown off because the early Bronze Age and the Intermediate Bronze Age is the wettest time in the land of Canaan. All right, but if the archaeological data is correct, Abraham and the patriarchs live in the Middle Bronze Age. Okay, the Middle Bronze Age, about 2200 to 1500 BC. That's the Middle Bronze Age. Okay, and that's when the patriarchs would be alive. Probably about 1800 is when Abraham would have been around. 
Now, the, during the Middle Bronze Age, through the studies of climatology, pedology, that's the study of soil, geology, geography, geomorphology, paleobotany, and numerous other sciences. See, archaeology now is a huge science. It's not just guys going over there and testing things with carbon-14. Now you've got about two dozen types of scientists over there doing everything from soil study to climatology study to pottery, everything, to figure out what's going on and get their dates from. Now, all those studies show that during the Middle Bronze Age, okay, when Abraham was alive, 1800 to 1500, we can do study from the soils there. We know that the land of the Levant suffered from several periods of serious drought and thousands of Semites or Asiatics from Canaan migrated to Egypt. Why would they go to Egypt? Egypt generally didn't suffer from drought. Why? They have the Nile Delta. All right, so Asiatics would go there. Now, we know that there's drought. You know, one of the ways we know is that when you study the soil samples, where, you know, and we can see, you know, spring, summer, spring, summer, spring, I mean, it layers back for thousands of years, okay? And when you hit a particular season and it's, you don't see much dirt, but you see a whole lot of sand, you know that that's a drought period. Okay? That's one of the ways that we know. And we know that during the Middle Bronze Age, during the time of the patriarchs, the Levant suffered drought. We know that through the study of the soil samples, also the settlement patterns. These cities, the population goes down. The cities are abandoned. We can tell that from the settlement patterns. And Egyptian records record numerous nomadic groups coming from Canaan as early as 1900 BC during times of famine and drought into Egypt. There was a lot of trading between Israel and Canaan. And so, of course, the Canaanites, when there's times of drought, would come down to Egypt. Now, this is confirmed when a little over 100 years ago, we found a famous painting the Beni Hassan painting. It's dated about 1890 BC. There it is, the Beni Hassan painting. It pictures a group of Asiatics, traders, metalsmiths, and shepherds traveling from the Levant, okay, from the Canaan area down into Egypt. Here's a reconstruction of the full picture there. These are Asiatic nomads from Canaan with full hair, beards, and what are they wearing? Robes of many colors. That's how they dressed back then. Okay? Sound familiar? Joseph received a robe of many colors. Okay? Well, that's what we got here in the Beni Hassan picture there in Egypt. So this would match the style of clothing worn in this period by the people of Canaan. Then we have in the 1700 BC, there's a group that migrated from Canaan. They're known as the Hyksos. All right? They migrated from Canaan into Egypt there in 1730, and they grew in number, and they grew powerful to the point where they took over southern Egypt. And in fact, the 15th to 17th dynasty is known as the Hyksos dynasty. These are Canaanites who came to rule the land of Egypt. Okay? The Hyksos dynasty. Now, the term Hyksos in Egyptian means foreigners. So at this time, Egypt was divided into two nations, the northern nation and the southern, okay? The Egyptian Egyptians 
were in the southern part. Okay? The foreigners, the Hyksos, came and took over the Nile Delta area. And they were the Hyksos rulers. So Hyksos shows you that Asiatic migrators did indeed migrate to Canaan. And they took over. All right, Over a hundred years, they ruled the land of Egypt and they're from Canaan. Where is Jacob and his family from? Canaan. They might have known each other. The Hyksos would have readily welcomed their fellow Canaanite brothers. All right, so for them to welcome uh, Canaanites, you know, Jacob is very likely. Now, remember, the Hyksos are Canaanites. Joseph is what? He's from Canaan as well. They would have welcomed Joseph, especially with his ability to interpret the dreams. They're Canaanites. He's, he's from Canaan. They would have welcomed and they would have allowed Joseph to rise up to that level of power. We've run out of time. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you would like Pat to speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule a conference at your church or location, give him a call. In Hawaii, that number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Use our search engine for available resources. Everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share it with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the Air, we rely on generous support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to donate, head on over to our website. Once again, that's evidenceandanswers.org. And you may do so right there online. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at HonoluluChristian.org. That's HonoluluChristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuccarello.